when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to SiriusXM CEO Jennifer Witz. Now, SiriusXM is a quietly fascinating company. You probably know it as the satellite radio brand that's in virtually every new car, but it also owns Pandora. It has a huge podcast network that includes 99% Invisible and Team Coco. And it has a content operation that supports huge stars like Howard Stern and has deals with every major sports league. What's particularly interesting about SiriusXM is that it started as a distribution play. Actually, two distribution plays. Sirius and XM were two different companies. They both launched competing satellite radio services in the early 2000s, basically pre-internet. They eventually merged, but they used very different parts of the radio spectrum. You'll hear Jennifer refer to this as the low band and the high band. Those bands are still incompatible. So Jennifer has to manage satellite development and deployment for all those cars on the road because the satellite distribution network is still the most lucrative part of her business. Sirius is effectively the dominant market leader for built-in premium audio in cars. At the same time, the competition is here. It's pretty obvious that the internet and mobile networks are a pretty good way of distributing audio content. Spotify exists. Podcasts exist. And yes, the Sirius XM app exists as well. And as the infotainment system in cars get ever more complex and computer-like, the Sirius experience has to keep up. You'll hear Jennifer talk about Sirius's new app platform and user experience that's coming later this year. A major theme on Decoder is that your distribution really dictates what you make. What are the differences between what Sirius makes for podcasts, for Pandora, for the satellite system? On top of that, the state of car software is in total flux. GM just announced it won't support CarPlay and new EVs. Lots of companies are using various riffs on Android. Something called QNX keeps burbling along. Tesla has its own thing. It's a mess. And Sirius has to support all of it with applications that compete with big tech companies, all while continuing to integrate the satellite hardware into the cars themselves. That's a lot for Jennifer Manage and a lot of change in the media ecosystem to deal with on top of putting satellites on SpaceX rockets. This is a pretty good episode. We covered a lot of ground, and I think I got Jennifer to agree to move Road Trip Radio to the Sirius channels. So for those who know, that's a win. You'll see what I mean. Okay, Jennifer Witz, CEO of Sirius XM. Here we go. Jennifer Witz, you are the CEO of SiriusXM. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you, Neela. It's great to be here. I am very excited to have you here. Uh, I'm a Sirius customer, so I just have a number of feature requests. Uh, that's it. That's what we're doing for the full hour. Uh, my wife is a hardcore user of the app. She has a number of feature requests, so get ready. Great. Uh, yeah, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> yeah, just take a list. Uh, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, one of the themes we talk about in Decoder all the time is that your distribution often affects what you make. 
and we see this over and over and over again. I've explained it a million times. YouTube, I think, is my favorite example. YouTube exists. We all know what a YouTuber looks like. Sirius is a really interesting company because it has so many different kinds of distribution, which are kind of the product, right? It started as a satellite company, actually two different satellite companies with competing ideas about distribution. You have Pandora, which is an internet radio company. You have Stitcher, which is a podcasting bet across all kinds of other people's distributions. How do you think about that? Well, it really starts with Sirius or Sirius and XM, which came together about 14, 15 years ago now. That is the primary source of our revenue. You know, subscription revenue from Sirius XM represents about 70% of our overall revenue. So we're really focused on how do we continue to deliver value to our Sirius XM subscribers. And the bulk of those subscribers are listening to us over satellite in the car. So the content that we provide over satellite is really broadcast, right? One to many, the pipe is only so big, you can only put so many channels on the air. But increasingly, with our new platform that's rolling out, which we call 360L, we can have a lot more interactivity in our service, whether it's just recommendations or more content in general. But as you as you mentioned, we have much broader distribution. I guess if you start at the broadest point, it's what we're doing with podcasting. And that's, you know, we believe in podcasters and, and content creators who want to distribute their content broadly across all third-party platforms. And so we have, you know, really strong business there as well. And that helps feed into SiriusXM over time. So I want to start with the satellite business. Like I said, I'm a customer. So I have a brand new car that has 360L in it. And you can't tell the difference really between when it's using mobile broadband and when it's using the satellite service. Then I have a car from 2016, which actually only has a Sirius radio. It doesn't have an XM radio. And this to me is one of the most interesting technology dilemmas that maybe any CEO has to face, which is that Sirius and XM, two companies, I think Sirius launched in 2002, XM in 2001. I remember the XM launch as like a baby and the satellites were named Rock and Roll. And those are the first two satellites. And it's this stuck in my memory. You have to launch satellites to support this business. And the satellites are not compatible with each other. The existing base of hardware in the cars, you can't upgrade. How do you think about that satellite business? How many people work on the satellites that it has? It's still the core of our business. And yes, we're launching four more satellites over the next few years. And we have a constellation of satellites today that feed Sirius and XM. And actually, the satellites are designed now to to, uh, address either network. And so they're interchangeable, which provides us with a lot of redundancy in orbit. But you're right, the cars are increasingly you know, on the road for much longer periods of time. So we have an installed base of vehicles out there, 150 million or more, that many of them have only access to Sirius and or only access to XM, which we refer to as low band and high band respectively. But both of them get the same set of content today. That's one of the things that we implemented shortly after the merger. Uh, but going Wait, forward, no, here's my first feature request. My 2016 yeah. with only a Sirius radio, it can't get road trip radio because it's in the high band. Uh, I didn't know right. that. And this is like, if you look on Reddit, this is yeah. like a common complaint is like this one very popular station doesn't service. The very popular station, especially service. this time of year. So I will take that back to the team and see what we can do. <laughs> uh, All right, we, results on decoder. But yeah. like that's that, that, this is like the heart of the problem, right? It is. Is you've got you're heavily hardware dependent in an increasingly software world. And I'm just wondering how you think about that particular kind of problem. Yeah, so we have two avenues, I think, to address it. Increasingly, we are rolling out our 360L platform, and that allows for you know, an unlimited amount of content, if you will. It's you know, rolling out slowly, but we are at about a third of our new car trial starts that are 360L capable today, but that's only about 8 million cars on the road. So eight of the 150 million. The other mechanism we have to address it is, of course, streaming only. And we're slowly building our streaming only subscriber base 
again, the vast majority of our subscribers today are focused on listening in the car with the, the radio that's embedded in the car. But streaming allows us to leverage in cars that may not have a satellite radio, or even in cars that do, maybe as a second you know, listening point in a vehicle, you just want to stream. So you can listen to the app through CarPlay or Android Auto, uh, and increasingly we'll have better features there as well. So you just made some hires to improve that app, right? And to improve the sort of online delivery of the content. Ex- explain what's going on there. So last year in January, we brought Joe Inzarillo on board as our head of product and technology. He came from Disney. He was very involved in the launch of you know Disney Plus. And as part of BAM Tech, he was involved in a lot of other D2C video launches as well. So he has built out a team at the company which is focused on our launch of our next generation Series XM platform. It'll start later this year with new streaming apps because as we've talked about, the company started as satellite radio with no real Mm -hmm. digital connection to the consumer, right? So we've used a lot of traditional marketing methods to reach consumers. And going forward, we want to make sure that we can use all of the uh, infrastructure that he's building across commerce and identity, MarTech, and better data to provide better experiences for customers across all their touch points, whether it's through marketing, in the product, of course, or customer service or anywhere else. So I want to I come to that because that sounds really interesting. If you just think about serious marketing today, you buy a car and you get mail until you sign up, until you give in and sign up, or the car is constantly showing you a preview. And you're saying you're going to build some other apparatus, which I want to talk about. But just at a really basic level, you have a new group that's going to build a new streaming platform, new online platform. They're able to go and address a bunch of what is now essentially commodity services, right? You hired somebody from BAMTech. They can go back to BAMTech and say, we want to buy your platform and use it for streaming audience at a video. Or there's a million other providers. AWS exists. On the satellite side, you described it as a proprietary platform. So there's probably not the gigantic ecosystem of vendors and suppliers to say, we're going to build you a satellite radio service. How is that cost split up in your head? As you think about running the company, do you have have to employ a lot of proprietary satellite RF engineers? We do. And again, it's a really core part of our business. So uh, making sure that we have engineers and experts on everything from the broadcast operations side through to satellite delivery, uplink, you know, designing the satellites, working with Maxars, our, our third party that's constructing the satellites, and SpaceX will launch them. But we're really involved in the design of everything, the radios, the receivers, the chipsets, and working with third parties through that. And we have the same you know, kind of challenges and opportunities everyone else has there in terms of how do we make sure that we have multiple sources and, you know, we can continue to execute on that strategy. So we do have a lot of unique talent in the company to take advantage of that, again, very proprietary pipe. And, you know, one of the great things about satellite delivery or broadcast, if you will, is once the satellites are in the air, obviously we have the the cost to maintain them, uh, but it's largely then a sunk cost, right? We don't have any variable costs for delivery. And on the streaming side of the business, as we build that platform, and it's a supplement in the card for delivery for 360L, we will have more variable costs in the cost structure. But, but yes, there's a set of sort of common, you know, at least underlying principles in the architecture that we'll be able to leverage as we build that. So let me just decode that. Uh, you're saying you, you spend a bunch of money up front on a satellite, you put it in the sky. That cost is cost, and it can service however many customers, and that's fine. Exactly. And you go to the cloud, you go to, the, to broadband, as you add customers, every customer is a cloud fee or a broadband fee or some other set of costs that come along with every new customer. That's right. Is that, as you work on your projections and you say, okay, more and more we're going to go to broadband, is that something you're factoring in? Look, we have really strong margins on the SiriusXM side of the business, and in part that's because of our licensing structure. But you know, given our pricing and our high variable margins, you know, it just provides us a lot of uh, opportunity to be able to leverage different delivery mechanisms, but still on a marginal basis ensure that our subscriber economics are very favorable. Let me ask you the decoder questions now, because I think we're right in the heart of it. How is the company structured? How have you organized SiriusXM? 
So we're functionally structured. Uh, so my team of direct reports uh, is made up of four individuals that I would say run the majority of the business side of the company. So we talked about Joe Inzerillo, who is our head of product and technology. I have Scott Greenstein, who's head of content. And then I have two people who are more focused on the commercial side of the organization. Our chief commercial officer, Joe Verbruggi, who is responsible for really engagement and onboarding of all subscribers or listeners uh, across our businesses. And he has all subscription revenue as well. And then John Trimble, who runs all of our ad sales. Uh, so they make up the business side of the organization. And then I have four individuals who uh, on my team are responsible for more of the corporate functions. I have Barbara Daniel, who runs our strategy organization. And then, of course, our CFO, Tom Berry, uh, our head of people and culture, Faye Tiley, and then our general counsel, of course, Pat Donnelly. And then I have a chief of staff who's uh, fantastic in helping me coordinate uh, the team. So a functional structure here is kind of interesting, right? Because you do have these big groups that people can see, consumer-facing brands, obviously the, the radios and the cars, but then Pandora and then Stitcher and then a bunch of famous podcast brands like Team Coco. Do you run them all centrally? You say, okay, here's the, st the Stitcher strategy and here's the car radio strategy and that all rolls up to me and I'm setting a strategy across them because you would, you would think that those would be more independent than not. The best thing is if we can have the functional leaders provide their expertise across these businesses. I mean, they're, they're not that diverse in the sense mm -hmm. that we're delivering audio content to listeners. But at the end of the day, it's about bringing content to listeners. So I want our head of content, Scott Greenstein, to be focused on the best way to do that across all the platforms. And then our head of product and tech to be focused on the best way to deliver that content across all the platforms. So I really believe in leveraging the expertise across these functional leaders. And then we work as a team, of course, to drive decisions that are going to improve the business across these different uh, individual brands. I feel like one thing I have learned over the past decade or so being a tech journalist is things that abstractly seem the same when you look at them on the internet are very different from a business perspective. So we're just going to use the internet to deliver audio the same way we delivered audio using FM or satellite. My listeners are always like, that's just the same, right? What is the difference between a podcast and a radio show? And then this is where I get to that thesis that the distribution actually has huge impacts in both directions. And the business of podcasting is way less lucrative than the business of FM radio. We just had Conal Byrne from iHeartMedia on the show, and he was like, FM radio is where the money's at. And we're using the podcast to help market that stuff. What is your most lucrative pipe? Is it still the satellite service? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the, as I talked from the start, the Sirius XM side of the business is, is the core part of the business. And I feel really good about where we are with that business because we have a highly profitable core business where our subscriber base is very loyal. We just had our, we run an annual customer satisfaction survey. We've had the highest CSAT we've seen in uh, really since we started running it over a decade ago. And that's led to really low churn. So given, given that we have high variable margins, that flows through overall to higher EBITDA margins. And we are one of you know the most profitable media companies out there. That just gives us a lot of latitude to evolve the business going forward. And, and I like our place in, in the advertising side of the business as well, because Pandora really started digital audio advertising all these years ago. And we have a great capable team there, a lot of ad tech uh, with AdsWiz that Pandora bought uh, before we bought Pandora. And we've been able to leverage that expertise, whether it's the Salesforce or the technology to have a bigger stake in the podcast business as well. When you think about that structure and decision-making, I'm going to ask you the decision question in a second, but when you think about all of that, does it ever occur to you, okay, we should move this show from the podcast distribution network where the rates might be lower to the satellite distribution network where we have really, really high margins? 
we think about that all the time. And I would say we have a lot of different models out there, and I'm not sure we've found the right one. There's no sort of consistent model across the board that we point to. And part of it um, ties back to what the creator wants, right, or the talent. And you know, there's this balance of, I think, a lot of certainly talk content creators, if you will, or non-music um, want broad-based distribution, right? It ties into relevance, it ties into audience um, growth, and we're happy to support that. And again, we have a lot of ad representation deals uh, with talent like Ashley Flowers at Crime Junkie and her network at Audio Chuck, where she wants broad distribution. So it makes a lot of sense. And where we have Change the model over time is something like you said with Team Coco, uh, where we actually bought uh, the company from Conan O'Brien, and he's stayed very close to obviously producing uh, his very popular podcast, Conan Needs a Friend, which is broadly distributed, but we also have more exclusive content on SiriusXM. We have a linear radio channel, if you will, that has elements from the podcast, but also more broadly, and he's created new content for that channel. But the objective over time would be not only to sort of dual objectives, continue to support the advertising side of our business and grow that. And there's certainly been a lot of tailwinds in podcasting there, but also find ways to serve the core SiriusXM business by bringing more exclusive content to that platform. I want to get into that, especially the podcasting tailwinds, because that seems to be just a convulsion that the entire audio industry went through. And maybe now we're getting through the hangover. But first, the last few decoder questions here. You're part of Liberty Media. That's a larger holding company. Famously, now they own F1. It's like one Netflix show turned Liberty Media into the F1 company. Very smart. How does that work with, with Sirius? How do you integrate with that larger holding company? Greg Maffei is on our board. He's the chairman. And we have had, since they came on in 2009, a really strong relationship with Liberty Media across the board. Uh, you know, really pleased to have them involved in the business. One of the things that stands out about Sirius's programming in general is the access to sports leagues, every NFL game, every NBA game. Do you get preferential treatment to F1 because you're part of the family? <laughs> uh we do a lot of work uh, with F1 and, and the other businesses across the Liberty portfolio, but uh, I wouldn't say there's any preferential treatment uh, <laughs> there. But we were just we just launched the Miami Studios and we did some some things together in Miami because it was right ahead of the F1 race there. Uh, and I think there'll be more ways for us to collaborate there. We work closely with Live Nation on a number of things, but no, I don't I don't think there's any preferential treatment necessarily. We have to take a quick break. We'll be back in a second with SiriusXM CEO Jennifer Witz. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. 
Real Traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We're back with Jennifer Witz. All right, we've talked about a lot. You have to figure out how to launch satellites, bring the cost down. You've got to invest. you got to go hire people from BAMTech and Disney and build an app platform. you got to argue across the family dinner table about F1 rights. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? I'm a big believer, and because I have this team of functional experts, of bringing them together and hearing uh, their individual opinions when we're faced with a big decision. And I love the debate. We've always had a history at Sirius uh, with you know kind of active debate on a topic. Uh, and then I'm hopeful that we'll come to kind of a one path on our own. But obviously, if not, then I'm the decision maker. And I really expect the team to jump on board with whatever decision we've made. I'm also a big fan of taking kind of the contrarian uh, view on something. So if we are looking at a decision, for instance, just to, to invest in this new platform, uh, you know, what happens if we don't? Right? And, and sometimes the decision becomes pretty clear uh, when you stack it up that way. My, my personal favorite model is to just always have the worst ideas in the room. Uh, <laughs> it, it's surprisingly fun. I doubt uh, that. Walk me through a moment where you had to be the decision maker. Probably in some of our content decisions, because the, the the challenge is decision rights at the end of the day, right? And if we're going to launch new content, I expect our head of content, Scott Greenstein, to you know come with that proposal and bring it forward as to why it would make sense. But you know, again, there's going to be opinions because the commercial team needs to execute on it and make sure that we're getting the value from that new content. Or maybe if it's uh, you know an advertising deal, we need the head of ad sales to be on board. Uh, but at the end of the day, those things may not be very clear across the team. So in content decisions, I usually take a pretty active role. So one of the big themes with your content decisions over, I would say, the past year or so is a really heavy emphasis on celebrity, right? You're, you're getting more famous names, making podcasts. You had acquired Stitcher and Earwolf. Those were a little more indie, a little more crunchy. There's a pretty noticeable shift. You're saying you're in charge of content decisions. Walk me through that shift. Well, again, it's, some of it's because of the evolution of where we are with podcasting, that there's a lot more content out there and there's a lot more attention around podcasting. And so it's been a great funnel for new content for the business. I mean, if you go back to the early stages of our launch at Sirius, we brought Howard Stern onto the platform. And Howard had a massive platform through obviously his core base in the New York City area, but then he was syndicated more broadly. And it was time he made the decision he wanted to come to Sirius. And that you know, created a, a completely different trajectory for the business. It was really critical that Howard felt it was the right time for him and that he got the sort of freedom that he wanted to shape the show in the way that he wanted on Sirius. And, and so that underlies kind of a lot of the decisions we make. Developing the content pipeline that we've developed in podcasting has given us exposure to a lot more talent. And that goes back to the model that we talked about previously about finding talent that we can bring behind the paywall to bring even more value to our subscribers. I did not expect a content moderation question in this interview, but you, you walked into it. With AM and FM, there's an FCC, right? There's a whole legal regime about spectrum scarcity, and that's why the government can make rules. I don't know how that plays with, with the satellite stuff, but I, I think it's much less. And with the internet, all bets are off, right? The, the government can't make any speech regulations. What are the restrictions in podcast content that you're talking about? I actually don't think there are that many restrictions. I think it's all about the business model, right? And making sure that there's enough brand safe content that 
advertisers want to participate in. So I do actually think there's quite a lot of freedom in, in podcasting uh, that looks more similar to what we have at SiriusXM, right? Where at SiriusXM, it's really right. about, for us, we want a broad set of voices. Uh, we are a platform for primarily opinions, right? I mean, we have, we have the news networks uh, on our service and political viewpoints across the spectrum. And we're really proud of you know, the diversity that we've been able to bring to our platform. So you're saying it's the market, right, that is providing whatever restrictions on content, right? It's what advertisers want to buy or what integrations, and that might be different on the satellite service than the digital distributed podcast service. Yes, yes. So back in the day when Sirius signs Howard Stern, that's just a talent deal, right? You just hired a famous guy. He brought a show over. He was expensive, but that's just a talent deal. Lately, you've been buying companies, right? You, you spent $150 million on Conan's podcast company. You spent a bunch of money on Crime Junkie, and you have, a, a, I think, an ad deal with Crooked that's worth a bunch of money. You have 99% Invisible, Stitcher, Earwolf. You're buying companies. Are you seeing the same return from buying those companies as from we're going to hire a splashy celebrity to host one show? Yeah. So we, yes, we bought Conan's business. Uh, we bought Stitcher. We bought 99% Invisible. The other deals you're, re- you're referencing are really uh, ad representation deals. Uh, so mm-hmm. we haven't purchased the underlying IP. And where we've made the investment in companies and, and buying the underlying IP, uh, we believe there's real access to talent that makes sense for our platform and the economics work. And then on the ad representation side of the business, it's really traditional podcast deals are basically ad share with a form of minimum guarantee. And so we thought those were very important to our in our ad sales business because we are heavily invested in Pandora with an own operating platform. Uh, but we wanted to participate in the growth on the podcasting side and, and leverage all these capabilities that we talked about earlier. Do you think those deals are working out? It, it feels like there was a real land rush to sign these kinds of deals. Uh, Disclosure, Vox Media has a podcasting network. They do it too. Spotify spent a bunch of money. You spent a bunch of money. Everyone else spent a bunch of money. Did it, did it work out? It seems like that period has really cooled off. Well, just if you look at our first quarter numbers, podcasting, uh, ad revenue is down about 2%, but podcasting was up 34%. So there is still a tailwind on ad sales into podcasting. So I'm really pleased, again, with the platform or with the, with the set of content that we have on the ad representation side. And yeah, the, the deals, it was very competitive, definitely, over the last few years. And I think the large assets, if you will, have, have largely traded. And I think there's you know an established set of distributors out there that are in the ad rep business and really, really love our content slate, right? We have five of the top 15 podcasts. We have a broad representation across comedy, true crime, news. And so, you know, we're well positioned to take advantage of what I believe are continued tailwinds in podcasting, not only from a listener growth standpoint, but from an advertiser standpoint, because many brands are still sort of sitting on the sidelines, right? I mean, it's a small portion of their budget. But we really have seen, for instance, programmatic grow pretty nicely over the last several months, especially as advertisers' budgets sort of free up at the last minute. They can come in and buy across our podcast network, whether they want to buy within a specific show or they want to buy across an audience, you know, that would cover all of our podcasts. Yeah, when you say programmatic there, you mentioned the AdsWiz acquisition earlier, right? You've got some technology where you can try to target listeners. This is the challenge in podcasting, right? It's figuring out how to get the right ads in front of the right people. And then you've got people like me who are cranky about host reads. Apologies to our podcast team. But those are very personal. You can't target those. You can't just self-service buy them. You got to go find talent. They got to actually read it. The platforms are standing right there to disintermediate you, right? You can just go buy the ads programmatically on Spotify as opposed to coming to Sirius or you can go buy the ads prog- programmatically in YouTube, or you can go to the podcast host directly. How do you sit in the middle and say, okay, you should actually buy the ads from us in podcasting? Well, because 
Sure, you can find other programmatic solutions, but you know, I think the direct sales component is really important still. And if you look at somebody like Conan, who loves doing host red ads, actually, uh, maybe you should spend <laughs> some time listening to his. There's a real fan- difference between being an entertainer and a journalist. And it's <laughs> They're right, fantastic. Right there. I mean, he has a yeah. whole podcast on ads, right, that he's done. And you know, he he's going to do it for the brands that he really believes in. And you know, we've had a lot of success with big brands on his podcast. So I think it really depends on what the advertiser wants. And if they want those custom integrations or they want you know, exposure to live events, a lot of podcasters are doing more and more live events, you know, we can bring that set of capabilities in addition to programmatic. So it's about a larger buy. But is that more bespoke, right? You're going to spend more money, but you're going to get Conan O'Brien reading the ads for you. You're going to spend more money with us and we're going to make sure our hosts read across the network. Or is it you're going to spend more money with us and we will efficiently reach more audience, which is what the platforms would say. Yeah, and and you can reach more audience obviously beyond podcasting. I mean, a podcast distributed broadly across all all other platforms besides ours, whether that's you know Apple or Spotify or YouTube, and we'll distribute that and, and represent those ads there. But also for advertisers, we can provide you with you know solutions on broadcast, SiriusXM. You know, it's a relatively small portion of our ad revenue, but you know there are a lot of affluent customers listening on SiriusXM or Pandora, of course, which is you know, really the largest piece of the puzzle today for us, where we can you know serve ads across the Pandora platform with a lot more first-party data and targeted ads. So Pandora to you is represents the direct competition with the platforms of Spotify and YouTube, right? You've got first-party data, you've got listeners logged in, you know yeah. who they are, you know where they are probably, and you can serve ads directly. Exactly. Is that growing? Are you investing in Pandora to make it grow into a true competitor to Spotify and the rest? You know, Pandora was sort of late to the game on interactive. And so we have, you know, a nice number of subscribers. We're about 6 million uh, in terms of, you know, different tiers. We have a radio service without ads, Pandora Plus, and then we have a, a small tier, which is fully interactive or on demand. But I believe the future for Pandora is really in the free tier. And we still have, you know, if not the largest, one of the top two largest free music streaming services in the U.S. And we have a lot of strong ad technology, and again, the ad sales team selling across that platform. I think from a consumer standpoint, we have an opportunity to continue to improve the listener experience, but in our sequencing of what we're building, because we can move Pandora to this new streaming platform too, but that's probably later next year because we have a lot of exciting things coming on the SiriusXM side between now and then. Do you think the average consumer should know that SiriusXM and Pandora are the same company? Should they know about the connection there? Because right now they seem very, very different. Yeah, not today. And I don't think the average consumer does know that today. We've we've been able to bring really the capabilities that Pandora offers to SiriusXM, which has been really important, whether it's algorithmic programming or performance media or more digital CRM type marketing capabilities that we just didn't have at Sirius. And part of that is because you know, Pandora's had all this data for a long time. And Sirius, at Sirius, we really haven't had that much data on listening because the in-car, we talked about the satellite delivery mechanism. There's no return path of data. So I don't know what you're listening to in your 2016 car. But now with 360L and increasingly our in-car customers streaming our service outside of the car and our streaming only customers, we've got this really healthy data set. So we've been able to leverage a lot of the capabilities from Pandora to help SiriusXM. And then there's been you know, other ways that we've brought the brands together in different instances. We have, you know, Pandora Now station on SiriusXM. We have, you know, SiriusXM content on occasion pop up on Pandora. So we've been able to, to, to bring content back and forth. But really, I think the biggest benefit has been on the capabilities. I'm listening to First Wave 80s on 8 and Lithium. It's a direct line. And then every right. now and again, I listen to TikTok radio, which is Makes me feel a million years old. That's a great uh, set of channels. You must have seven or so because that's what the average listener has, seven channels. Yeah, it's something like that. But you've got hundreds of channels, but you're saying the average listener has seven. Pandora yeah. like widens you out, right? You're like, you just start and off it goes. It does. Six million subscribers, ad supported. I listen to other streaming company CEOs and they say, look, the future is probably some combination of subscription and ads together, right? Netflix is a subscription. They've added an ads tier. They seem to be doing quite well with it. Disney's headed that way. Is it the same in audio? Is it going to be the same combo of you pay a fee, but you get some ads along the way? 
Yes, I think so. I, I do believe, though, SiriusXM, given you know, the premium nature of what we're providing, we won't have a lot of ads in the service. We do have ads on our non-music content. and mm-hmm. But as we look forward to the flexibility that the new platform will provide us on, say, the commerce side, we can create a lot more packages. And an ad-supported package uh, might be compelling, especially to our core segments who, you know, maybe don't want to pay $19 a month for our core service, right? So so we have the opportunity to create more ad-supported channels. We can put ads in the music channels. And I think we'll have an opportunity to test that when we launch uh, what we're calling our fast service later this year. Uh, it'll start rolling out in 360L vehicles. And, you know, we can do more IP-targeted ads through that as well. Yeah. And that'll give us a lot of flexibility to just test out different models with what content's available. Maybe it's a free tier, maybe it's just a lower price tier and, you know, adjust the ad load, for instance, or the content that's available. So we talked a lot about the sort of overheated podcast business, the big acquisitions, the flashy spending. You did have to have layoffs earlier this year. I think it's seven or eight percent. It seems like a lot of that was in the podcast part of the business. Walk us through what happened there and how you made that decision. Yeah, so we came into this year knowing that both auto sales and ad sales were going to continue to be soft for some period of time. And, you know, again, we're delivering, we're a public company, we're delivering uh, value to our shareholders as well. And we're very focused on making sure that we had discipline around our spending and we looked at every aspect of the cost structure. And we did a lot of work last year. Uh, to not have to address the people side. And we came into this year with a really thoughtful strategic approach to not only reduce costs, but to look at the business and make sure that we could be more effective and efficient. Uh, and that that meant some reorganization, not really at uh, my leadership team level, but at teams below my leaders to bring things like analytics teams together on marketing or content teams together on the content side of the organization. So it definitely didn't affect podcasting more than any other team. It was pretty evenly spread throughout the organization. And you know, my main focus, having not really done one of these since the merger, uh, was that we treated people you know, fairly and respectfully and that we ended up in a place where the employees that are still with us feel very connected with what we're doing and you know, have a set of responsibilities that they're excited about. Do you think you would have had to cut less if you hadn't splashed as heavily on the podcast acquisitions or the podcast spending? No, I, I think the, the deals we've done in podcasting uh, really set us up well for the future. In, in anything, you're going to have to invest up front, right? And I'm yep. I'm really excited about the monetization opportunities that are starting to play out and uh, where we're going to be in the future. The thing that interests me about Pandora right now is it's in the middle of like cutting edge copyright lawsuits. And I'm an old copyright lawyer, so that's captured my attention. But a lot of comedians are suing Pandora saying that they're owed two sets of royalty payments, both for the performance of the comedy and then the underlying publishing rights to the the written version of comedy. There's not a lot of precedent for that. You can see how in the current marketplace of intellectual property, everyone is looking for the next payment because rates have just fallen so low with digital distribution. Where are you on that? Is that you're going to come to a resolution or are you going to go all the way to a trial? I mean, I can't comment on the status of the litigation, but I will tell you, Pandora has been a great platform, supportive of comedians, uh, you know, for many, many years. And, you know, the comedians that we've licensed uh, their works from the labels, in many cases, you know, we've all we've always thought we've had the whole right, right, whether it's recording mm-hmm. or the the writing of the underlying jokes. And you know, I think as this litigation started, uh, we did see some comedians leave kind of the, the group that are participating uh, alongside the plaintiff because we had to take down the works and until it's resolved. So we have had some comedians break away from that. Uh, in order to get their content back up on our platform. But you know, I really believe in comedy. It's been one of the you know, biggest drivers of listening outside of music on Pandora and is certainly core to our SiriusXM service as well. Uh, so you know, we will continue to work through it and hopefully come to a resolution. You run one of the most interesting content businesses out there because you are so regulated in terms of rights payments that you send out to people like satellite radio licensing fees are written into federal law. 
we're kind of staring down the abyss of copyright law with generative AI and being able to fake voices and names and likenesses and fake Drake. Are, are you just waiting for the bomb to go off? Or are you actively participating in conversations about what the future rate structures should be? Well, as you said, our core music licenses on the SiriusXM side of the business are licensed through the U.S. Uh, Copyright Royalty Board. We have an established rate in place through, I believe it's the end of 2027, and we're paying on you know the, the musical works that we play, right? And we aren't really involved in the generation of music. So while I think AI will be very positive in terms of its impact on our business, there's not really the same issues that we might see in other platforms, um, certainly on- well, there So you, you have TikTok radio, right? AI Drake explodes on TikTok. Would TikTok radio play the fake Drake song? So I don't know. I mean, I, I guess we haven't really crossed that bridge yet, uh, but I assume we'll be right side. I mean, we've always been alongside the artists on this, and I think you know, we've had a really strong position uh, in breaking new artists and building their careers, and you know, want to continue to uh, make sure that we're doing that. The TikTok radio piece of the puzzle is actually really fascinating to me, because there's so much content on TikTok that is just a creator or just Charlie Puth screwing around. And there's no associated label to go negotiate with. There's no infrastructure of licensing that content and making sure payments actually reach the creators. But a lot of it actually does end up on on TikTok radio. Do you have a team that's just like, we're going to go figure out how to license this stuff? I mean, TikTok radio is really a curated experience, right? So it is, uh, we are, you know, highlighting the content that has become popular on TikTok. And just we have the opportunity to decide sort of what, is on the channel and what's not, right? We're, right, but both. I hear remixes on there that I could not tell you if I was a programmer. I could not tell you even where to begin to go get the rights to a popular song that's had a remix and has now been sped up by a third person. That just, that just seems like a puzzle of, of rights management that somehow ends up on the radio. Yeah, again, all of our all of our content is licensed through, you know, either through the US CRB on the recording side or with direct deals we have with the publishers, mostly through the collectives, right? ASCAP, BMI, et cetera. So those musical works would be, you know, licensed through those deals that we have in place already. All right, one more quick break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're back with SiriusXM CEO Jennifer Witz. All right, let's talk about cars. I've been very good at not talking about cars this entire time. That's all I want to do. I think you have the most unique perspective on the car industry now. The way, the way I think about it, you have been making software for cars as the only third-party app vendor for like two decades. You buy a Ford in 2004, there's no app platform in there, but Sirius's code is in there and Sirius's hardware is in there. We're undergoing a massive shift in the car business. Sirius's business is really exposed to the car business. You've mentioned it several times. The first thing I noticed is that the industry is selling fewer, more expensive cars, right? The trend all the car makers seem to be on is instead of a lot of $50,000 pickup trucks, they're going to sell fewer $100,000 pickup trucks. That's where they're going. That just reduces the number of cars you can activate Sirius in. Is that something you're worried about? Well, the, the 
Car market is certainly our biggest uh, funnel. So new and used car sales, uh, we are in just over 80% of new car sales and just over 50% of used car sales. So every time somebody buys a new car, it's another opportunity for us to get a new subscriber or we have existing subscribers trading their cars or adding a car to the garage. So, so it is really impactful in our business. And we've seen subscriber additions slow as a result of that because of the last few years. I do wonder, the automakers, you know, we're starting to see supply issues alleviate, you know, the some of the supply has grown, particularly at the domestics. That's going to continue. And in the automotive industry, there have been these cycles in the past where everyone likes to say, well, the margins are really high. You know, maybe we will, maybe the industry will pull back on inventory levels. But at the end of the day, it's pretty competitive and they want share. So I expect that over time, as long as the demand is there uh, and supply starts to come back, that you know sales will ultimately rise because you know, the, the automakers want to go after that incremental sale. Car company CEOs love to appear on Decoder. I love having them. There's a huge shift in how we perceive of cars. They're becoming much more integrated computing devices, especially with the shift to EVs. One of the reasons they're excited about that is because... They are looking at Apple's margins in the App Store and saying, all right, I want 30% of every transaction that happens on the screen, too. You're right in the center of that, right? You're saying, put my hardware in your cars. Here's a subscription fee to a very premium service. Up until now, it doesn't seem like there's been a big revenue share going on there. But I can imagine every car maker is going to say, why would I work with you when I can go sign a new kind of deal with Spotify. There is a lot of revenue of share. <laughs> so okay. from day one, we've shared in the subscription revenue with our partners. And, you know, I think not only is that, does that differentiate us between other, us and other media services, because we have the margins to be able to support that, but it also helps us engage with the OEMs to make sure that we're, we have the same incentives, right, to make sure that the the service is prominently displayed on the screen, you know, that we're getting information on the customers so we can market, sending that direct mail that you get uh, or emailing customers, uh, making sure that the, that the trial is actually on and it's very easy to get into the service after you've bought the car. You, know, you have a lot of other things on your mind when you buy a new car. So we want to make sure the service is on and working when you step into that new vehicle and you get to experience all the content. So the revenue share has been key to that uh, in terms of working close with the OEMs on what the future is for SiriusXM. Do you think that revenue share is going to provide a moat against competition? Right, you said you had high margins. You had high margins because you're the only premium offering in a car. There, there literally wasn't another one. Now you've got people like me with their phones on their dashboard running running Apple Music. You've got CarPlay and Android Auto that exposes that directly in the interface. Is that bringing down your margins in the car? Is what bringing down the margins? Just the competition from phones. Uh, no, it's not bringing down the margin. I mean, we want to make sure that ultimately we're agnostic about what distribution we use. So, mm -hmm. uh, so we will have always an integrated uh, radio experience in the car with a receiver, you know, and ideally going forward, you know, our best platform is 360L in terms of providing the best experience for the consumer because, you know, satellite delivery allows for uninterrupted uh, delivery of our service across the U.S. And of course, you know, with modems, there's always going to be dropouts, whether it's urban areas or in, you know, less dense areas, but, you know, not as heavily networked areas of the country. So that is a real benefit to satellite delivery. But again, with the, with the IP delivery, we can actually customize the service in ways that all the other media services can do. So yeah, the, the infotainment systems in the car have been evolving for years. And we've really you know, been at the forefront of that, making sure that we're designing for those new infotainment systems, working closely with the OEMs, but also in some cases working closely with, say, Google, right, who's launching uh, Android Automotive, the operating system in the cars. That's going to give us a lot more flexibility, too, because we can update our service you know, quarterly or so, mm -hmm. just like every other media app, but also will be represented in, most, in multiple places in that screen as well. So this is one of my favorite ways of, of thinking about costs. You've got two buttons on a screen and you push one button, call it Neilize Music Service. So you're not talking about your competitors directly, but Neilize Music Service is an IP-based streaming service. You might say it looks a lot like Spotify. And I push that button and I am just trading on all of the mobile broadband infrastructure that exists. And I might even be trading on a consumer's own broadband subscription, so I don't even have to worry about that. 
and that costs 10 bucks a month. I push the Sirius icon on that same screen, another interface opens, and now I've got your satellites in the air, I've got custom hardware in the car, I've got a 360L system in the background running. That's all just more expensive. But all that's happening to me is the consumer is I'm clicking a button and listening to music. How are you going to compete against the, the fully digital platforms that are trading on other people's connectivity? So more expensive in the sense that we've launched satellites and we've got this infrastructure because that's well, already in The cost of Sirius XM is more than the cost of stock. Oh, to the consumer. Uh, yep. Yeah. So as we develop this new, uh, our next generation Sirius XM platform, we're trying to solve for a few different key pain points, which is going to allow us to broaden the universe of our prospective subscribers. And those are price, control, and discovery. That's what we hear time mm-hmm. and time again. So so the, the experience itself is going to make sure because it's so critical, whether you're listening you know, to our service through the, the mobile app, through CarPlay or Android Auto, or you're leveraging an in, embedded streaming version or an embedded satellite plus streaming in 360L, that ultimately we need to provide more control and discovery to the consumer because in the past it had been all about broadcast and just turn the dial to find new channels. And that's not what you know, many younger consumers certainly want to do. So providing these more enhanced recommendations is going to be key to that. We have so much great content, but it's very hard to get consumers into content if they don't know what we have. And then providing links from that embedded radio experience in the car out to the streaming apps so that discovery can happen there, which may be a better place to facilitate it. And then those behaviors, those listening behaviors can come back into the car as consumers, you know, experience different channels or different content outside of the car. They'll bring those experiences and behaviors back into the car. So even on that side, right, you you mentioned, okay, Ford is going to go from here to there with their software stack. They're supposed to be moving to Android. Who knows? They keep launching cars without it. I got to get Jim Farley back on the show and ask him about it. GM just redesigned their interface to say, we don't want CarPlay in Android Auto anymore. And our new EVs going forward won't even have it. Tesla exists. Uh, My Jeep, my new Jeep that has 360L runs a forked version of Android that is based on Alexa and TomTom maps for some absolutely bonkers reason. That's a lot of software ground to cover, right? That's a lot of platforms to support. One extremely universal theme on the show is that once you start investing in software, the costs just escalate. They never come back down. How are you thinking about, okay, we've got to support 95 different car makers and their bizarro platform ideas. That's where something like AOS helps streamline the development process mm-hmm. because you're developing That's one. Yes, sorry, Android Automotive operating system, which I believe it's something like 70% of OEMs have said that they are going to adopt. We'll see, but that helps (laughs) us streamline the development, right? Because it's basically one app and we can distribute it across all those players. But that actually hasn't come true yet, right? Like the Ford example, they announced it almost 18 months ago and the new Mustang is out and it still runs QNX with, I think, Unreal on top of it. They're, They're just... They're still looking at this and saying, uh, the big platform companies are sitting on top of us. Uh, last year, almost exactly a year ago now, at Apple WWC, they announced a version of CarPlay that would take over all the screens in your car. Do you see that happening? Do you, do you hear that rumble in the industry that's, hey, there was a moment when we when everyone thought we would give up the interface in the car to Apple and Google, and we are actually realizing that it's not the I right mean, choice. I think the automakers don't want to give up control, right? So they're trying to find the areas where the big tech companies can assist them, uh, but ultimately they can still control the user interface and and do, as you've said, try to participate more in the services business. So we have to be really flexible. And we really have been for 20 years, right? Because we've had to design for these different automotive UIs, you know, since inception. And it was more hardware, and less software. And over time, it's shifted to more software. So we've already had, you know, the the infrastructure, the team, the resources in place to be able to design across multiple types of implementation. I'd say probably had less control over what that looked like than we mm-hmm. will going forward, it, as long as the OEMs tend to uh, coalesce around a few different solutions. But we're going to have a lot more flexibility no matter what, especially as we design for these new solutions that are coming forward. Here's an extremely loaded question. Do you use CarPlay in your car? 
I do. Yeah, but I, I move back and forth between the Sirius XM radio and then I'm using CarPlay for my nav. So I don't even use CarPlay in my car. I just mount my phone on the on the dashboard, which my other show, Vergecast listeners know, they think this is the dumbest thing in the world and I should just use CarPlay. But that shift, right? I'm sh- I would rather have two screens with your interface on one screen and a, a map on the other. No car does this well. Are you Are you like happy with how your software is being expressed in the car? And do you think the car makers are going to give you the tools to get to where you should be? In part, it comes back to two things, uh, revenue share, which certainly motivates, mm-hmm. and consumer demand. So one of the things that we hear quite often from consumers who have a you know, number of these sort of startup EVs, right, high-end, new introductions mm-hmm. to the market on the EV side, where we, we aren't present today. We just launched a, a beta version in Lucid. One of the biggest complaints that we're hearing, and I believe they're hearing, is that SiriusXM isn't there, and it's not easy to use necessarily. So mm-hmm. I think that works in our favor, especially because, again, we have a lot of affluent customers who just come into the their new vehicle purchases and expect us to exist there. So I do believe that's going to be a force to help us navigate this with the OEMs to ensure that our presence on the screen, you know, is is very obvious and that uh, customers can get right into the service easily. You mentioned you didn't have a lot of control over your user interface before. That makes sense for a million reasons. Now we're just putting full-on tablets in the middle of cars, for better or worse. They're just full-on tablets in the middle of cars. Those are app platforms. You can design the app however you want. Is your vision that the app on a phone the app on a car, the app on an iPad should all look the same and work the same? There should certainly be continuity, but we've designed for these in-car experiences, as you said, for a long time. And we understand, you know, kind of the the security and the um, safety, you know, guidelines through NHTSA and otherwise uh, for in-car implementation. So I think it'll naturally be different in the car. We just can do a lot more in the apps in terms of allowing for control and discovery, but we want the continuity across the platform, which is, you know, what we're building will allow for that, whether you're listening through the apps or in the car or, you know, in some ways through connect devices in the home as well. What do you think the endpoint of this big shift to car as a computer is? Is it finally we're going to get rid of the steering wheel and self-driving happens and everyone just is in a world of screens happily shopping in their cars or is, is there a different kind of endpoint? We're certainly talking uh, a ways out into the future, right? It's really interesting mm-hmm. because I'd say 10 years ago, everyone was talking about autonomous and it was the biggest topic for the automotive industry. And you don't really hear as much about it anymore, right? It's all about electric. And, you know, we've got our hands full, I think, as a country and an industry and just rolling out electric vehicles. And I really... I think it's, you know, this is biased. I'm biased. I'm in an audio company, but I do believe <laughs> that intimate listening experience to audio in a car, something that we do phenomenally well. People are just passionate, whether it's First Wave or Richard Blade, or you're passionate about the host and the curation that exists on our service, that that audio listening, even if the steering, goes, steering wheel goes away, is going to continue for a long, long time. So this is the threat, though. I was asking about it nicely, and you, you, you were talking about it directly, which is you take out the steering wheel. Even now, passengers in the car are just like on TikTok, right? But the, the driver is kind of boxed into an audio-only experience. You take away the steering wheel, now everyone is watching YouTube on their phones. Is, does that, do you see that as an existential threat? Do you have to like market against that? Uh, certainly not today. And I would say it's going to be a lot, two decades into the future. And even <laughs> then, enough. even then it's a small amount of cars that are coming out. And, you know, and, and I do think it, in some level, it flies in the face of what consumers really want. There are a lot of consumers out there that want the driving experience. And again, it's a, it's been all of these years, we've all been trained as consumers on audio in the car. And it's a, a very special connected experience to be listening to, you know, whether it's your music, your favorite channel or your favorite, you know, talk host, you know, it could be Howard or Andy Cohen or, you know, any number, Megan Kelly. I mean, we have such great talent on our platform that I think those connections and that habit is very well established. It's going to take a lot to disrupt that. Where do you think that the combination of podcasting and that broadcast comes together? Because what we've talked about since the start of this conversation is at the end of the day, the consumer kind of doesn't understand the difference between the distribution, but your business definitely does. 
right? Your business definitely knows, okay, with the satellites and the cars, there's an entire well-built lucrative business model with high margins. And then over here on podcasting, we're still inventing ad tracking tech. We're still inventing the marketing technology and that's a wide open space. If self-driving is two decades away, you're not worried about that. The convergence of those things seems like tomorrow. Right, we're actually asking people to pay a lot of money for a hardware streaming system when the cars have level two driving and you can maybe screw with your phone a little bit more. That's going to get more and more squeezed. Are you thinking about that? We're thinking about it and how we're designing this platform because it comes back yeah. to, again, addressing these gaps we have around control and discovery. But fundamentally, we are a curated uh, audio experience, right? So yeah. I think what our customers love ba- most about us is that we do help guide you through the content you'll love. We have a set of music channels that that our consumers love. We have a set of talk audio content that our subscribers love. That may be in the form of podcasts or just on demand, honestly, right? It could be live shows that are adapted to on demand and show up as a podcast. So I think as long as we are providing that guided experience and offering consumers a more curated experience so they can help find the content that they love, uh, that's where we provide a lot of added value versus a lot of other platforms where you're just doing fundamentally a lot more work to find things that you love. All right, Jennifer, this has been great. Thank you so much for giving me all the time. Thank you for indulging the car talk. It's like, truly, I could have done the full hour on on just what's going to happen to the car. You can come back Uh, and do that. Yeah. You said that there's a new app coming. Give us a timeline. What's next for Sirius? So really excited about this next generation experience. It starts uh, with a launch uh, later this year in the fourth quarter uh, with a set of new streaming apps, but also all of you know the, the first step in re-architecting everything, all the foundational capabilities. So really addressing every consumer touchpoint with better commerce, identity, MarTech, data capabilities. And so that foundational experience will improve relevance, ease of use, and value for our subscribers and prospective trialers and really go towards addressing these pain points that we've talked about, whether it's you know flexibility on price or more control and discovery. And it's going to help enhance the streaming experience if you're a streaming-only subscriber or if you're an in-car subscriber, whether you're leveraging satellite only or 360L, it'll help with what your, you know, your listening behaviors outside of the car, which are delivered by streaming, or 360L, right? The stream infrastructure that supports 360L and just, again, enhancing value for our subscribers by providing easier navigation of our service and more discovery of all the great content we have. I think it positions us really well for the future. We talked earlier, we have a really strong foundation uh, financially, but also with, you know, a very loyal, uh, satisfied set of subscribers uh, that we can build off of as we launch this next experience. Amazing. Well, look forward to that. When the app launches, you're going to have to come back and tell us all about it. Can't wait. Thank you, Nayai. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Jennifer Witz for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. We read all the emails. Or you can hit us up directly on Twitter and TikTok at decoderpod. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Raghu Manavalan and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder. But you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.